Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. The advice is to create a vision. And a vision is not created overnight. It's created by taking lots of photos because your vision is what you see that no one else sees and how you want to capture it. My mindset was a mess. I was always stressed. I wasn't sleeping. I was not taking care of myself. But my business was doing great. Well, that's not what I was told what would happen. I was told when my business was great, everything else would just fall in line. Anyone can take a good-looking photo. You go out to a great sunset, you can be one of the three blind mice. You're going to take a good photo. But to make an image imputes that there's an intention behind it, imputes that there's a vision behind it. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features James Patrick. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at jpatrickphoto. Who is James? James is an award-winning, published, commercial, and editorial photographer and best-selling author based in Arizona. At heart, James is a storyteller. And as a storyteller, he has a bevy of mediums in which to craft and communicate his stories. He's also the founder of Fitposium, which is an annual conference, online education network, and weekly podcast that helps fitness entrepreneurs and talents launch their careers. So, James has uh, quite a background from the newspaper world to the photography world, and there's a really cool story about how he moved from newspapers into becoming a photographer. And so we dug deeper into the tech side of things because whenever I do these podcasts, people always ask me some technical things like what kind of camera should we use? And I was shocked by his answers. His, his answers around what kind of camera to use was, it sort of doesn't matter. What kind of eye do you have? What kind of story are you trying to tell, et cetera? So 
I dug in deep on photography. We got into the weeds and we also talked about living a full life. He had just gotten off of some crazy kind of adventure where he was like put in a a van and blindfolded and sent out to the desert to do things that scared him. So we talked a bit about that as well. I love this interview. It was refreshing. It was different. I learned a lot and I think you will too. So before we jump into it, a lot of people have been asking me about private coaching. I'm working with a select few people that are ready to make a change in their life. If you fall into that category, go to workhardplayhardcoaching.com and fill out an application and we'll jump on a call. So please enjoy this really interesting interview I had with James Patrick. James, welcome to the show. Rob, how is it going, buddy? It's been way too long. Long time. I am super excited about this interview. I'm super excited because I understand that you're just coming back into technology. So this is probably the first electronic gadget that you've been associated with uh, in uh, the last uh, 48 or 72 hours. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, the last 48 hours. I went on a very physical, very mental, and extraordinarily emotional retreat in my own personal development. But part of it was we were blacked out. We handed over our phones before we stepped into a van to be blindfolded, to be taken to a destination we had no idea of, to be put through some of the most challenging tasks that we've ever had to endure to find some answers in ourselves at the end of it. Well, I don't even know where to go. I mean, as, <laughs> as, a, as a guy that asks questions for a living and nat- has a natural proclivity for interviewing people, there's 18 billion questions about that. But just hit the low-hanging fruit. What was it? Why did you do it? And what did you get from it? So the why behind it was at some point in, in someone's trajectory, they get comfortable. And when they get comfortable, they stop moving. They stopped challenging themselves. And I noticed for myself, I had gotten comfortable at some point. I had stopped challenging myself. And when I noticed I had stopped challenging myself, I found it harder to push myself. I found it harder to grow. So I enlisted in this program to do something that I knew was going to be scary. I knew was going to be hard. And I knew was going to make me want to quit over and over and over again. But I did not quit. I did the program, despite how intense it was, despite how difficult it was. But what the intention was, was to find that why again. Why do I do the business I do? Why am I dedicating most of my life to something? And then... How do I reignite that fire so that I'm doing it with passion, with, that I'm doing it with vicious aggressiveness, that I'm doing it with intention? That was the reason behind joining this program. Mm, you are on fire, brother. I feel that energy. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of we're going to back up a little bit sure. because I want to give people some perspective about you. And I think a good jumping off point would be to... Talk a bit about uh, some of the early years for you. You got your degree in journalism and you got a job as a staff reporter for a small newspaper. And I'm, I'm just making this Spider-Man picture in my head. I don't know why. <laughs> why did you want to study journalism in the first place? 
getting into being a journalist was never really a passion of mine. It was never really something that I was fired up about. It was just the thing that was right in front of me. And when I was young, that's all I could see. I was not, I did not have the the foresight to look left or to look right of that of that journey. You know, it's interesting. Tony Robbins talks about, you know, shooting all over yourself. I should do this, I should do that, and blah, blah, blah. And then you wind up going, What the fuck did I do? Like, mm-hmm. why am I doing this? So how was the day-to-day of journalism now that you were in it or were in it different from what you thought it was going to be? It was you know, early on as a journalist, I, I liked it because it was different in the sense of there's always something new to learn. And to be honest, I actually liked working on the editor side more. So instead of going out as a reporter to work in the office as an editor, assigning the reporters, collating the assignments, putting them together, laying them out, determining the editorial direction. I actually loved that process. But when it got into doing it in a bigger publication or trying to do this over a long period of time, that was a very long trajectory in front of me. I would have to work as a reporter for years before I ever got to that point. And it was depressing for me. I did not enjoy being a beat reporter. And here I am, 19 years old, being sent out to cover, oh, cover the opening of this community college and interview two people, make sure one is the mayor and the governor's coming down, get get a one sentence quote from him. We need 800 words. We need it by five o'clock. That was miserable for me. I hated doing it. It was out of my comfort zone. It was out of my, just what I just wanted to create. And it, it gave me reason to be open to something else. It's really interesting. You know, um, as with all things in life, life happens for us and in your particular case, in this world, one day there was no staff photographers and you had to take a photo for a piece that you were doing. Mm -hmm. What was it about that moment that inspired you to become a photographer? It was an inspiration. And this is just full transparency. For me, it was... I, I didn't feel like I had a choice. I'm being sent out on this assignment. I'm working late in the office. And okay, James, we need you to go cover this piece. It's on this orchestra conductor. 500 words. We need it by tonight. Go out and interview him. Okay, I'm on my way out. And the editor says, actually, I need a photo to go along with this. All staff photographers are on assignment. Can you just take this staff camera with you and go take this photo. And I said, fine. And to me, it was like, all right, well, I get paid twice now because I have two bylines. So I get paid for the article and I get paid for the photo. So that's good. I'll just do it. And as I'm walking out the door, the editor stops me and says, time out. Do you know how to use that camera? I said, I have no idea. I've never taken a photo in my life, at least not not professionally. Like I I have my experience on one to 10, uh, let's say zero. So you know, there's an on button, right? And it was not good. But what it did subconsciously when that piece came out is that I saw, I controlled now two components of this story. I have my article, my byline, but then also I have a photo that goes along with it. Like I said, it was not a good photo, but I'm controlling more of the narrative here. I'm controlling more of the story. I think that is what was appealing to me. And that is what started to get me to explore creating images a little bit more. Because historically, like the only time I'd picked up a camera prior to that moment was my father's camera. It was this little steel-bodied Canon AE-1. And I picked it up 
And I said, oh, photography. That's cool. That'd be an interesting job. And my father, and I remember it very specifically, said, well, that's an expensive hobby. And I thought, okay, well, that, neither of those sound like successful, uh, you know, expensive and hobby. Neither of those relate to successful. So I just put the camera back up on a shelf and then I went on with my life. So to flash forward six years, I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting because I'm now getting paid to take photos. My cost of entry was not as big as I was warned it would be. So what if I just continue to explore this a little bit more? All right. So then you explore it. And this becomes a really significant part of your life. And I think what I want to do is, if it's cool with you, I'd like to geek out a little bit on photography. And then we're going to move into some other areas. But I know that when people are going to be listening to this podcast and are going to see the word photography in the title, I'm going to get a bunch of messages asking me, why didn't you ask him about this? So, (laughs) So just hang with me while I go through this just asking for a friend. So for someone just starting out in photography, what are two to three things that you could give them to help them improve their pictures? You know, the technology does not matter. What matters is your vision, your vision of what you want to create. So the advice is to create a vision. And a vision is not created overnight. It's created by taking lots of photos because your vision is what you see that no one else sees, and how you want to capture it. That's why if you've noticed this entire conversation, I've never said take photos. I say make images because there's a difference. Anyone can take a good-looking photo. You go out to a great sunset, you can be one of the three blind mice, you're going to take a good photo. But to make an image imputes that there's an intention behind it, imputes that there's a vision behind it. What do I see and how do I want to communicate what I see? That is making a photo. So the best thing I could say to an up-and-coming photographer is make images, find that style, develop it. Because that right there, having that style and having something that you develop, that when you start to market yourself, when you get to a point where you're campaigning for projects, it is your vision which sells you. It is your vision. It is your style which differentiates you from others in the marketplace. That's why for the longest time, when it came to health, fitness, and sports portraiture, I was cleaning up because no one had my style. No one had my vision. Now, today, there's a lot of competition in that marketplace. So I'm shifting my style. I'm shifting my vision. I'm developing a new body of work because I want to be different yet again. So that is what I'd advocate is try to develop a style, develop a vision of how you see and what images you want to make, not take. It's interesting. So, you know, when we see somebody like an Annie Leibovitz, for example, that's a common household name Mm -hmm. that most people know about. What what we're really seeing is not this, you know, unbelievable camera with perfect lighting and she's got the best of this and the best of that or the best subjects. We're seeing her imagery, her vision. Yeah. And, and interesting. Stylistically, specifically with Annie Leibowitz, Annie Leibowitz has a very stylistic approach to her vision. Now, vision can be related to technology a little bit. I know photographers who are brilliant photographers who, you know, when they talk about their light, when they talk about their composition, they'll they'll say, well, the inverse square law of light. And, you know, this is just like, okay, great. And that works for them. But then I know other photographers who are equally successful, who they feel 
their way through the creation of image. They feel their way through what they're doing. So Andy Leibowitz developed a style over decades of work, decades of developing what her light is, what her connection is with the subject, because it's not all technique. It's, 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 there's being, especially photographing people, because Andy Leibowitz is a portrait photographer. You have to connect with the subject in a way. You have to pull something out of them. And that is why her images have become so iconic. But she's developed a way in which she lights the subject and when she wants to show what they look like. And that style has been emulated by hundreds, if not thousands of photographers since then. Another photographer is Gregory Heisler. Gregory Heisler has photographed more covers of Time magazine than any other photographer. He has a certain style in how he sees and how he wants to communicate in his imagery. And that then other people look at that and like, okay, I want to shoot like Gregory Heiser. I want the Gregory Heisler style. I want to emulate that. But if you try to emulate someone else's style, well, then you're just the second version of Gregory Heisler. And if I'm the photo editor of Time Magazine, why would I hire the next Gregory Heisler when I can just hire Gregory Heisler? I love that. You know, one of the questions I get all the time when it comes to podcasting is what, and I'm sure you get it too, because you have your own podcast, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, what what equipment should I buy? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, just record it on your iPhone. Like, yeah, it doesn't totally. even matter. Totally. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. You know, if Tim Ferriss did it on his iPhone, he'd still be in the top whatever. Well, you know, me I mean, he's this. good at it. Do you think it's because... Someone who let's we'll just use the example of podcasting. They just think, you know, if I have the right microphone, if I have the right recording deck or sound mixer, then everything else will be easy and they don't have to think about, okay, what is it like to connect with someone? What is it like to ask questions? What is it like to have a conversation? What is it like to listen? That's just easier to focus on the technology? No, I think it's that they don't know what they don't know. Mm. And I think that they're just asking questions. Uh, because they want to start a podcast, they have a desire to do it, and they want to do it as best as they could. And so because they don't know what they don't know, they're like, okay, well, what's the best equipment I can buy to make it sound the best? So mm-hmm. they're aiming their cannons at sound quality instead of aiming, aiming their cam- cannons at interesting topics and interesting conversations and great guests. And, you know, they just, they, they don't know. They don't know. But, you know, speaking of speaking of cameras, you have to buy something, right? You have to choose to purchase a camera. So, you know, not that I didn't hear the advice that you just gave me, because I did, but I do have two questions that I want to ask you for somebody who's saying, hey, look, I, I do, like, I got you, and I'm going to make sure that I do exactly what you told me to do, but I still have to buy something. Sure. So what would you suggest for, I'm going to ask you two questions. One is what would be a good point and shoot for somebody to start off Mm -hmm, with? mm -hmm. And then the second question is, it's a personal question. I'm looking at getting something, getting a camera that's a little bit more interesting. And I have my eye on something called a Leica Q2. And I was wondering if you're familiar with that. So maybe you can speak to those two points. Okay, so the first one, like you just want a good point and shoot camera. I would, I would argue, get a point and shoot camera that allows you a manual control. Okay, okay. So yep. an example would be, I picked up a Sony uh, CyberShot, which is a no, no, sorry, CyberShot was an older model. It's the Sony A, I want to say eighty five hundred. And it's a, for me, it was a walk around camera. It 
is mirrorless, which is the new kind of the new craze with digital cameras, uh, which means it can shoot faster. It can shoot more frames per second, but it also allows me to switch lenses on it, which I like that versatility. But I can just you know kind of slap a thirty five miller. 35 millimeter lens on it. And it's so small and so compact. It fits right in my pocket. I bought it before my honeymoon. I went to Maui and it was the perfect walking around camera. And I have to be honest, I'm not terribly brand loyal, but if I were to emerge into a new brand, I'd pick up one of the Sony alphas, like the Sony A9, I believe. I I rented for a shoot for Golf Magazine. And I freaking loved that thing. I was having so much fun shooting with it. And then to your other the other point uh, with the Leica camera, I mean, what an iconic brand to just have, you know, to, to just make something interesting with. And I think that's really cool that you picked one up. Well, no, I haven't bought it yet. Oh, you haven't looking, bought it yet? No, I'm looking at buying it. I was in uh, I was in LA last week and a, uh, I, I never even heard of a Leica camera. And one of the guys um, in LA that I was with had this little thing that I thought was a toy camera. And I realized I pissed him off when I was like, uh, you know, like laughing at it because it looked like this. It doesn't look like anything special to me. It just looked like this, you know, camera. It's it looked very, like a di- yeah, it's very stylized in, in how it looks. Yeah, I mean, it looked like it looked like something that really like I would buy for my kid. And then I saw the photos that it took. Now I understand what you're saying about imagery, and he has a definitely he has a really really good eye when it comes to this stuff. But there's something about it that looked radically different than any photo I've ever seen any camera mm. take. So is there something different about that particular lens, or was it probably just him? I'm just going to say oh, it was probably just him or what or what he was photographing. Interesting. Because really, I'll, I'll really go back to aforementioned. Like I had this mentor in college who, when I was getting into photography, who was really pushing me and he said, you know, James, do you want to take beautiful photos? And I said, yes, I want to take beautiful photos. And he said, all right, go photograph beautiful things. And th- there's a point where, you know, if you go to a, uh, uh, let's just say it's, it's a nice scenic view. You go to that place a hundred days in a row, you're going to get a hundred photos that look, different. All right. Speaking of beautiful things, you photograph girls in bikinis that are beautiful. How did you find yourself shooting fitness people? <laughs> Intentionally, I would say. <laughs> Were you uh, married at the time? No, I was not married okay. at the time. My trajectory would have been a lot different had I been married in college and then growing up through college. How do you like working, taking photos of, uh, I'm assuming you do guys and girls, right? Oh, yeah. uh, for fitness? Oh, yes. Okay. All right. So how do you like, I mean, this is a silly question, but like, you know, anything else, you know, even photographing girls in bikinis can become work after a while. <laughs> so I guess my question to you is what's the, well, we know what the upside is. What's the downside to photographing that type of subject? Because I'm sure what comes with it is probably somebody who hasn't been eating for very long mm-hmm. <laughs> prior to the picture mm-hmm. with you. Maybe somebody that is battling some ego issues. I'm being a little stereotypical here only because I've I've done many shows and had many photographers take pictures of me and I know what I felt like at that time. You know, what are the downsides to doing that, if any? You know, it's interesting because no two subjects are alike. So as I'm kind of running through like 15 years of six, 17, 17 years of taking photos, I don't know if any two 
two of my subjects have been the same. And I guess it, there, there comes from two, two aspects of it. So I'll, I'll look at from the aspect of, let's say I'm working with a model. We're on set. This is a professional model. Well, she has a job to do. She's been booked for this project. And there's really, you know, when you're at that level, there's really no drama at all. I mean, they've, they've gone through this routine. They're there to do a job. They're friendly. They're, I mean, they hopefully they're friendly and courteous. Like if, you, if you've booked them through the right agency and, and you have the right project with them. And then once the job's done, the job's done. And that's, that's pretty much it. And then there's, there's really no conversation other than, you know, hey, thank you so much for being a part of this. To contrast that, I work with a lot of professional athletes from I mean, every. I think I've worked with every major sport except for professional soccer. I, I don't believe I've ever photographed a professional soccer player. But I've I've gotten polo. I've gotten uh, Olympic athletes, NFL, Major League Baseball, NHL, NBA, and the thing I have to remember there is they're professional athletes. They are not professional models. Many of them are not comfortable on camera. Their job is not to be on camera. And that's very important to remember because, and this is a real, real example. I, I got hired to photograph this Major League Baseball player because he just got named on the All-Star team. And his publicist is only giving me 15 minutes. That is it. One five, 15 minutes to photograph something that normally I'd want 60 to 94. And she's, she's really grilling me on it. So already there's tension on set. And so the art director, myself, my assistant, we show up, we set up. And I find out that the player who hasn't, he's, he's coming, but he's not there yet. I find out that the player has been really nervous about this photo shoot because he was just getting blasted online for taking one of the worst media photos ever uh, for his for his player card when they display, you know, when he goes up to bat. And so he's nervous. He does he's nervous about being there. He doesn't want to do it. He does he was just made fun of online and it went viral. And I only have 15 minutes with this guy. And so when he finally comes on set, he's very nice, he's very courteous, but he's nervous AF. And I look at them like, well, I have two options. I can take 15 minutes of the most mediocre photos possible and just hope and just pray I get something, or I'm just going to talk to him. I'm just going to spend as much of that 15 minutes as I need to to talk to him, to make him feel comfortable, to get him to know who I am, to get him to buy into what we're creating, and to get him to loosen up and and want to have fun, want to have a good time with this. And I spent, I want to say, uh, maybe six or seven minutes doing that, so about half my time, and then I started taking photos. And I made a cover... I made a decent cover, but then we went down, we made interior photos, and I made one of my favorite photos of him. One of my favorite photos. It is still in my... I shot that maybe five years ago. It's still in my book to this day because it was just this... And and that would never have happened had I not taken half of that time to just talk to him, just joke around with him, just give him some jabs, do a little self-deprecating on myself, and just to make him feel like, you know what? I'm glad you're here, and you deserve to be in front of this camera, and we're going to create something amazing together. So it can it's kind of go both it's ways. It's interesting. So, so there's a lot of psychology here in creating what you're after. It's certainly, you know, as we've uh, as we've discussed, it's it's certainly not just you know digital. There's a there's a lot of mindset and a lot of psychology and a lot of you know, setting the stage so that you can get what's inside to appear um, on the uh, on the picture. Yeah, it's interesting because 
I'm not a landscape photographer by profession. I do not photograph still life by profession. I work with people. And there's something to be said for being able to talk to someone, being able to get someone to open up because it is insanely vulnerable when you see... I'll, I'll use I'll use the example of when you see a red light on a video camera go go on and panic sets in. I may, God, I hope I don't mess this up. I don't know if I look good or not. I don't know if I wore the right outfit. I don't know if my hair and makeup looks good. There's so many things that is running through the mind of the subject, and it's my job as the photographer to make them feel at ease, to get something out of them that they didn't know was possible. But if I'm the photographer who just sits back there and doesn't say anything and kind of, you know, grumbles, you know, the subject's going to get nervous. The subject's going to close off. The subject is not going to open up and give the photographer what they need. Now, Granted, the photographer, when he's looking at the back of his camera, he's thinking about his lighting. He's thinking about his composition. He's thinking about his framing. He's thinking about the focal length he's at. He's thinking about the angle he's shooting from. He's not really worrying about what the person looks like, but the person doesn't know that. The subject puts it, they internalize it, right? So when I'm on set, I'm, I over-communicate. I make my subjects feel like they deserve to be on set. I get them bought into the process. I get them to have a great time. And that is how I have subjects who return to me time and time and time again. I love this. I love this. Uh, switching gears a little bit, let's talk about uh, Fitposium. What is it and why did you start it? The reason I started this idea of Fitposium or what turned into Fitposium is, you know, we work with so many individuals within the health and fitness space. And I create these images for them. They're getting published. They're getting magazine features. They're trying to launch their own businesses. Maybe they're personal trainers or nutritionists or whatever it is they want to create within the health and fitness industry. But they don't know how to use these images. They, they might put them on social media and they're like, well, okay, they're on social media now, or I started a website, but I'm not getting job offers. No one's contacting me. No one's hiring me. I had one person, she came to me and she said, I think I can market myself to magazines. I said, well, let's find out. You got, you seem to got the right, you seem to have the right look. You seem to have the right story. Uh, you're, you're on the cusp of, of a hot topic right now. So we, we, did a portfolio shoot for her and we put her in front of a few magazines. And within a year, she landed three different magazine covers. There are people who go their entire careers. They will not get a single one. She got three in a year. But by the next year, she was out of business. She was a personal trainer and she was out of business because she had no idea what to do with the attention. She had no idea how to harness that new audience and then how to convert that audience into clients. And I, I was thinking about them like, how are people not getting this? I don't understand how people are not getting this. But then I realized, oh, I have a background in storytelling. I know how to tell a story. I also worked in marketing. I know how to apply a story to a brand and position it in front of clients. And I know how to convert those clients into recurring customers. But that's not common knowledge. So let's start having this conversation. That conversation, it started blogging probably over 10 years ago. That turned into podcasting. But the thing that was missing was a community, a community of people coming together to share best practices, to share lessons learned, and to 
keep each other accountable and motivated and push each other to figure out what that next step is because they're all taking it together. And that is what birthed the concept behind the Fitposium Conference, which we launched back in 2015. And we launched it with three pillars. We said, we want to talk about three things. How do you build a brand? How do you then market that brand that you built? And then third, how do you profit from the brand that you've built and have marketed? How do you turn that into profit? And we are now coming into our fifth year of this conference and it has grown every single year. God, I remember when you started this. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. All right. So what I'd like to do now is I'm going to move on to the fulfillment uh, portion of the show and talk about some of the things that you're doing in your personal life to help improve outside of areas like uh, fitposium, photography, podcasting, etc. What is a new behavior or belief in the last fill-in-the-blank number of years or months that has significantly improved the quality of your life? I'm going to say the last... the last. I'm going on nine months right now. I'm going to say nine months, but aggressively for the last six months. And I, I have to actually give kudos to you, Rob, because I had never heard it put this way until I heard you talk about it, which is when you were talking about the trajectory of your life, the the timeline that you walked down on, how you devoted yourself to your business for so long, how you gave everything to this business. But there was this other part of your life that was atrophying, that was not that you were not being fulfilled by. And it wasn't until you got to just where you have been over the last few years that you decided to flip the funnel and you found this amazing balance between your work life, but your personal life. And I was doing that same mistake. So when you first described this to me, it didn't resonate with me because I didn't understand it. I didn't Mm -hmm. know what was at stake, but I figured out what was at stake. And what's at stake is this. We've been conditioned to believe that you work on your business, you hustle, you grind, you pulverize yourself into the ground on your business. And once your business is up and running, then you will have time to focus on your body. Then you will have time to focus on relationships. Then you will have time to focus on your mind. But that's wrong. That doesn't... Because guess what? And this is what I was doing. And this is what messed me the hell up is I devoted myself to my business and I had no friends. I had no relationships. I was the eternally single person. I was unhealthy because I never took the time to take care of myself. My weight ballooned up to almost 240 pounds. My doctors were warning me about my blood pressure, about my weight. They were telling me, you are on a bad path. You have diabetes in your family. You have not been taking care of yourself. And my mindset was a mess. I was always stressed. I wasn't sleeping. I was not taking care of myself. But my business was doing great. Well, that's not what I was told what would happen. I was told when my business was great, everything else would just fall in line. And that was a lie. So what I've learned is that you have to honor your body first. You have to take care of yourself. 
Mm, I love that. All right. We're going to move into the rapid fire round of the show. All so right. answer as quickly or as slowly as you like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind round. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? I get stuff done. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Right now, the fear is I don't want to peak. I don't want to get comfortable. I want to be uncomfortable. I want to run face first into my fears. And I have a lot of fears about being seen. What do I do for a living? I'm a photographer. I hide behind the camera. I'm not in front of the camera. That's a real thing. I do podcasting. You don't see me when I podcast. You just hear my voice. There's layers of barriers that hide me because at the core, my entire life, I've been afraid of being seen. So that's something. If I were to put one thing on my big goal sheet for the rest of 2019, it's to beat that fear of being seen into the ground. Mm, great self-awareness. Good for you. Thank you. What, what book, you're welcome, what book have you reread the most? A Whole New Mind by Daniel Pink. I've read that probably four or five times. What's one thing that you own that you should throw out, but you probably never will? This is such a nerdy thing. I am such a fan of vintage toys and games. Like I own the original NES. It's in a closet, but every now and then it comes out and, and I'll log in a number of hours on Super Mario Brothers. I don't know why I got into this, but even as an adult, I love Legos. It's awesome. All right. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? For anyone that is interested in learning about Fitposium and being a part of the Fitposium conference, it's October 3rd through 6th in Scottsdale, Arizona. You will have some of the greatest presenters on stage at Fitposium this year, teaching you everything about building, marketing, and profiting from that brand within health and wellness. Whatever you choose to do, you will learn how to build a successful business in this. Uh, and I, I and I wanted to give a, a promo code for any of your listeners to get 25% off any pass to the conference. So when they go to get their pass, you can get at fitposium.com. When they go to get their pass, you can enter the promo code, one word, all caps, Work hard 25, and that will give you 25% off your conference pass, any conference pass at Fiposium. What a beautiful gift. Um, and I can personally vouch for this show based on, the, well, let me say, not personally, because I haven't been to it, but I, here's what I'll tell you. A lot of my friends and people who are in the know after he did his last one, reached out to me and said, dude, this was really, really good. You should have been there. So if I wasn't in Italy, I would be there myself. And even though I'm not a fitness professional, I wanted to, I would be there to support you. Um, and I've heard nothing but fantastic things about it. So my hat's off to you. Thank you so much, Rob. I appreciate that. You are welcome, James. Thanks for taking the time. And Rob, thank you. I don't know if this gets said enough, but it needs to get said. The message you are providing to your audience, to your listeners is critically important. So I need to send out the biggest vote of thanks and appreciation to you for hosting a show like this. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or 
their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. Oh, 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 o